I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. Before we get started today, a couple of notes. First, we're going to be on hiatus for the next couple of weeks. We will be back in mid-July and back in our studio, our newly refurbished studio, which is something we're excited about. And also, moments before we stepped in here to record, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he would be retiring. Currently, cable news is in crisis mode, reporting on the implications of that decision. And we will have coverage up, by the time you listen to this probably, at CJR.org, so please check it out there. This week, we've got three topics for you. First, a 28-year-old Latina from the Bronx shocked the political world by defeating one of the top Democrats in the House in a primary this week. But depending on where you get your news, you may not have heard of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez before Wednesday evening. Second, our yawning political divide and what the debate over civility and coverage of Trump voters tells us about this particular moment. Finally, we check in with one of the people at the center of those debates, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders. Here to talk over all of this with me, CJR Digital Editor Noska Renner. Hey, Noska. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me back. So for our first topic, we're going to stick close to home. On Tuesday night, just a few miles from our office, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez celebrated her primary victory over 10-term Congressman Joe Crowley. For cable news and some mainstream outlets, she was almost an unknown, but her success in part was fueled by progressive outlets like The Intercept, Splinter, The Young Turks, Mike, Refinery29, a bevy of mostly digital sites geared towards younger audiences, people who are super involved in progressive politics. And also from social media. I think she had a video go viral on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Yeah, her kind of uh, biographical campaign video was shared. I think I, I saw in reports this morning that it had been viewed almost half a million times. Yeah, I thought it was really striking, not just that there there was a difference in the outlets that decided to cover her prior um <clears throat> prior to her win. I mean, you know, Jill Abramson criticized the Times this morning, for instance, for missing the story. But to me, the the more interesting angle on that is that the way that she was covered this morning also sort of spoke to me of a rift between DC media and understanding what happens in these like young left-wing campaigns. For instance, like Axios and Politico and The Times like all called her liberal and progressive. To me, those are not words that are really should be used to describe somebody who's one of their main campaign uh, platforms is abolishing ICE. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, she's she's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She openly, you know, describes herself and proudly describes herself as a Democratic Socialist. That's more than just being a liberal Democrat. Right. And somehow, you know, all of these places noted that she spent far, far less on her campaign. I mean, I think Crowley spent like 1.1 million total and she spent around 300,000. And the numbers are even more jarring if you look at it just in the previous three months. But somehow they noted that she spent very little and was crowdfunded without noting that she was socialist. Yeah, she obviously is a pretty unique figure um, on the national stage right now. And you mentioned how mainstream or legacy outlets were covering her. The AP's tweet announcing uh, oh, yeah. her victory. Oh, yeah, that was shameful. Uh, here, I'm reading it right here. It says, breaking, U.S. Rep. Joe Crowley defeated by young challenger in Democratic primary in New York. Right. And, you know, Pelosi also sort of was pushing Super the narrative dismissive. that this was a single race. Um, 
You know, I, I don't know if it's a single race or if it's going to be a blue wave. I, I have really actually no sense of whether or not that's going to happen. We're out of the prediction business after We're out of the prediction business. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the media, if they're really going to cover DSA and left-wing challengers well, and there are a lot of them. I mean, they're in Pennsylvania, too. They're going to really have to learn to speak their language a little bit better and to see what distinguishes candidates from each other. Because I think right now they're just all being lumped in with each other as like the Bernie wing, whereas like Sanders doesn't even support some of the things, Bernie Sanders doesn't even support some of the things that she's supported. So we need to learn how to differentiate between these people. Well, and we also, when we say we and the media, we should differentiate there because there are, as as much of the coverage uh, on Wednesday has focused on, there are outlets that do get those distinctions and that are better versed in the politics of younger progressive or democratic socialist um, or whatever, you know, whatever positions these insurgent candidates are supporting. There are outlets that are on top of this story in ways that places like CNN and the New York Times just aren't. Which is an argument for a diversity of anyone's media diet, in my opinion. Definitely. Um, I mean, there was in Brian Stelter's story crediting the progressive media, he made a comparison between the intercept support for Ocasio-Cortez and the way that Breitbart had pushed uh, challenges to Eric Cantor back in 2014. I think that flattening and equating of the Intercept with Breitbart is obviously an insult to the real journalism that the Intercept does. But it is interesting, the connections between these sort of outlets that have the pulse of an electorate in ways that, you know, a a mainstream uh, publication doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an insane comparison to make. Uh, The Intercept does have way more of a left-wing political agenda than any other major major news organization that I know of. But on the other hand, covering someone like her doesn't amount to the work that Breitbart was doing on behalf of the Tea Party. No, I think, right. The I think you're right. And I would push back against the way it's phrased in the story. Um, but recognizing that, you know, we always talk about, well, the conservative movement has Fox News and they have Breitbart's and those type of figures. Um, and Places like the New York Times and she's like CNN are called liberal media, and they're not, right? Are they center left in a very establishment way? You can make that argument, but they are not liberal or progressive media. Um, and so the recognition of the influence that places like The Intercept, and again, it's not just them. There were several outlets covering this campaign uh, and treating it seriously. I think that's something that her victory highlighted and crystallized for us. Moving on to our second topic, uh, I know when I hit up farm-to-table restaurants, I always try and order the meal with a side of civility. But Sarah Sanders didn't even get to the main course last week before being asked to leave a Virginia restaurant. That incident launched a roiling debate about the role of civility in our politics that has been going on and playing out on cable news and in op-ed pages and actual reported pages of newspapers over the past week. And Uh, is totally overblown and totally boring. I agree. We are not interested in litigating the finer points of civility in the hospitality industry. Um, But I do wonder what your takeaway is from all of the conversation that we've 
heard and read and seen about this over the past week? I mean, my takeaway, I've read a lot of things that I agree with on the topic of civility. I think when it comes to politics, it's one thing. And I'm sort of more interested in taking the concept of civility and applying it to what we do as journalists. I think there's a lot um, to learn from that application. And I also think that the idea of civility and incivility when applied to journalism, I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it really illuminates one of the core things that journalists are arguing about right now. Um, So for instance, uh, Adam Gopnik had a piece in The New Yorker about civility that I thought defined it in a really useful way. He said that it's about uh, inviting people to the table, about having a seat at the table, which really rings true to me even on the global stage, like at the UN, you know, if you have a seat at the table, you have some amount of power. And, you know, showing up on time, for instance, to the G7 is a mark of civility. Um, And when you think about that in the context of a journalistic article, then you start to get into these questions of who you're inviting as a source. Like who, what sources are you inviting to the table of your article? Well, and that brings up uh, what I felt like was a corollary to the questions about civility in Sanders. Jeremy Peters of the New York Times wrote yet another uh, profile of Trump voters. Do they support the president? Uh, His piece focused on the way that attacks from the left and the sort of things that happened to Sarah Sanders or Kirsten Nielsen earlier uh, were actually drawing Trump supporters closer to him. And that article faced criticism that others uh, by other journalists who go into Trump country have also faced of, okay, what are we learning from this? Why are we doing another profile of these voters? And your journalistic definition of civility as a seat at the table sort of implies that, well, we should be spending time uh, with Trump voters. Yeah. I mean, this is not to say that reporting on Trump voters couldn't be improved, which I can get to in a minute. But the idea of including Trump voters, and I think it's not exactly the same thing as objectivity, but this I think is what objectivity, when it's done well now, is trying to get at, is acknowledging that you not only want people people's views to be represented within your pieces, but you want them to read your pieces. You are trying to invite a number of viewpoints you know, it's a very like, it's almost like an Obama-esque sort of lofty goal about, you know, yeah, like taking the high road in terms of being a journalist and, you know, trusting that people have worthwhile things to say, even if a hundred times beforehand they haven't. So it's that idea of continuously bringing people, uh, again, to beat a dead horse metaphorically, uh, to the table and giving them a chance to continuously explain what their positions are? Well, and if you think about, like, what, like, what is the point of civility? The point of civility is somewhat about mutual respect, but it's mostly about continuing the relationship. If you say, like, I'm just going to sit down and be civil with you, you're basically saying, like, look, we disagree, but I want to have a working relationship. I don't want this disagreement to end our relationship. And when you think about like journal like journalists and any type of source, like 
that's what it means to be civil. I think Peters actually made a pretty good defense along those lines. He was interviewed uh, by Slate, and he said, essentially, we missed this story in 2016. What do the critics who are saying don't spend your time with Trump voters want? Do they want us just to cut off relations with this group and miss any story again? Well, that's where I think reporting on Trump voters could be improved. I don't think that it's useful to go in and just constantly ask the question, so do you still support him? Like after (laughs) this latest thing, do you still support him? Uh, That kind of piece just gets really monotonous to me. Um, So what questions should be asked instead of just, do you still support this guy? I mean, what I'm really curious about is how people are thinking about their local and state level politicians and those politicians' relationship to Trump. Uh, We were talking earlier about Iowa and how people in Iowa, very strong, some very strong Trump supporters, some people in Congress who are strong Trump supporters, and yet all all of these tariffs, you know, and the trade deals, like, People in Iowa, yeah, yeah, are going to be targeted. And, you know, I'm really curious about whether or not voters in that state are connecting the dots in terms of Trump, uh, Congress's support of Trump, and policies that actually affect their lives. I think we get too many questions that are about how Trump voters look at a federal policy and think about, like, Immigration. You know, it's it's so far from them. Yeah, I think this goes to a larger issue of the nationalization of all of our politics and to an extent, a lot of our media, right? We've talked a ton about uh, the problems in local news. And it, there's also this issue that once everything goes online, um, you are addressing as big an audience as possible, right? You are not just the Do- Des Moines Register trying to reach people in Des Moines, you're not just the Philadelphia Inquirer working for the, you know, 1.5 million people in Philadelphia. You're trying to draw a huge audience. And what connects that huge audience? It's national issues. So when you get, um, you know, a place like the Times that sees itself as not just a national but an international paper, going to Virginia, uh, going to Montana, going anywhere, they're asking about big picture questions as opposed to, hey, what does this tariff mean for your uh, local economy in Bozeman, Montana or whatever? Right. And what do you think of your local politicians handling of that? Right. Um, And again, it so much comes back to horse race coverage also, because the stuff, obviously the questions about do you still support Trump are dealing with, well, where are his approval ratings? Even the way that the Sarah San- to, to circle back, the way that the Sarah Sanders incident was handled, a lot of it was this is going to be a gift for Republicans in the midterms. It's going to energize their base. And that was sort of the reason Peters went down or the, the framing way he framed his article. And it's not about, hey, what do you think of uh, these policies that Sarah Sanders is helping Um, support and push and the way they're affecting you in your area. It's, oh, how is this incident and the coverage of it and the outrage about it going to affect uh, an election that's four months away? And you made a really good point earlier also about specifically about the immigration debate that, you know, what immigration looks like in Missouri and what immigration looks like in Texas are two completely different things. I make all my good points before we get on the podcast. (laughs) 
And yeah, I think that's just something that outlets struggle with, uh, figuring out the balance between individual, personal, local impact uh, and national stories. Because again, you do want your work to be read by as wide an audience as possible. And it's the mark of parachute journalism. It's the mark of parachute journalism to come in and not know what questions to ask and assume that because you're not asking the right questions that people don't have informed opinions. I mean, I think that if you ask people a specific question about a, you know, a specific district and who they're supporting, a lot of people have close answers. But like, if you say like, what do you think of your local politics? That's too vague of a question for people to really have a response to. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, And as we get closer to those midterm elections, I'm sure we will be seeing more check-ins with Trump voters and how they're feeling about national issues. So maybe this discussion, uh, not just here, but one that's been playing out online and in journalism circles, leads to better coverage going forward. All right, for our third topic, we mentioned Sarah Sanders earlier, and the press secretary has been conspicuously absent recently. She's held just one press briefing in the last 10 days. So first question, should we care? Are the briefings in which Sanders lies, obfuscates, and I'll have to get back to you uh, even worth having? Well, we care about Trump having a press briefing. That's a good point, but we care about that because he's the leader of the free world. Should we give as much credence to his spokespeople who at times are contradicted, sometimes hours later, by a Trump tweet? Um, I, I don't know. Like NYU's Jay Rosen has been banging on about this since basically the beginning of the administration saying the briefings are worthless, newspapers should send their interns, and we should be focused on an outside-in approach rather than showing up at the White House and waiting to be told, uh, you know, I'll have to get back to you on that, or told outright lies. I mean, I think that the press briefings, even if we learn nothing new from them and even if they accomplish nothing, are worthwhile. That might It might still be the case that we should send interns rather than seasoned journalists. So I'm interested in this because I, I go back and forth. I watch way too many press briefings. It, it you know When they're on, um, it is something I spend far too many afternoons doing. And there are times when I do think it's really useful. Uh, when Kirsten Nielsen was on last week talking about the administrations uh, at that, you know, the border separation policy that was in place at that time. I thought it was good to see her challenged, uh, uncertain of answers, unable to answer questions, and, you know, outright lying about certain questions based on reporting that we had read. At the same time, those lies and those statements are being aired to the public without having, you know, a fact checker there to tell you, oh, by the way, she just lied about that, right? The journalists can push back with their questions, but I don't know. I, I, sometimes I think there's use, there's a utility in seeing these figures challenged publicly. Other times I worry that this is just allowing them to broadcast their message without guardrails. I mean, I basically think about this in the same way I think about anything democratic, which is that there's a usefulness in the routine practice of it, even if it doesn't have any utility in the moment. That even if you have 
a primary race in which two candidates are indistinguishable from each other, that there's some kind of civic use in people voting anyway. We feel this way about the press, too, that there's something about the practice of the press that even if it's no good in a particular story or instance, it's worth defending even the smallest of mistakes because you're trying to preserve it for the future for as long as possible. I guess this is like what people think of when they think of like democracy eroding. And that's why I think the press briefings, you know, I'm not, I'm not usually such an idealist when it comes to <laughs> democracy, but I do think that it's helpful for the Trump administration to stand in front of people for as long as they're willing to and pretend like they're engaging with the press. Well, it's kind of the same thing you were saying about professional civility, journalistic civility, that there's value in maintaining a working relationship, um, even if you are just going through the motions with it. Right. And also, like, so much has changed so quickly in the Trump administration. And I think that's part of what has been so disorienting for, I mean, me included, like everybody in the population. And so the things that we can hold on to that are sort of structured events, I think, are are worth holding on to. It's interesting. You say you're not so usually so idealistic. And I you know, working with you, I'd say, yeah, you're not usually so like establishment norms, like we have to protect them. Um, But I get what you're saying. It doesn't make it any less frustrating on a day-to-day basis. No, but I would rather have the frustrating practice than not have it at all. It's a good place to wrap up. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to Noska, as always, for being here. Thanks, Pete. Just a reminder, we will be off for the next couple weeks, uh, but we will see you back in mid-July. But in the meantime, please continue to check out all the great work we've got up at CJR.org.